0: Welcome to the Balance of Power Roundtable broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, joined as always by conservative commentator, analyst, and political consultant Alicia Preston and former U.S. Representative Paul Hodes. We have to start, of course, with the discussion that's dominated the last week. We recorded this show literally moments before the big bombshell dropped Justice Samuel Alito's draft opinion that would overturn the Roe v. Wade decision that had, it's had a 50-year run of guaranteeing a right to an abortion in America. We recorded that episode. We didn't mess with it when it went to air last Tuesday uh, and released on podcast. Obviously, there has been, I don't think there is a, there is a political analyst or anyone with an opinion anywhere in America who hasn't had a published piece or a commentary somewhere on air about this in the last week. I do want to take a somewhat fresher look at this now that we've had a week to let it settle, because the politics have begun to set in and and, and take some shape. Just this morning, and we're recording this again on a Monday afternoon, U.S. Senator Maggie Hassan, who is going to be in one of the most closely watched, tightly contested Senate races in the country, and is probably a pretty good bellwether, for how the politics of this issue are going to play out, released a new digital ad in which she goes up against all of her potential Republican opponents as men who want to take away the right to choose. My question, let me start with you, Paul, is how do you see this issue working? politically for Democrats. There has been a ton of virtual ink spilled over the idea that maybe it will galvanize Democratic voters. Maybe it will galvanize women. Maybe it will be something that can help save Democrats in the midterms. What do you make of Senator Hassan's ad and what do you make of that premise?
1: So remember when Donald Trump was first elected, there was a huge outpouring of women who marched on Washington. When the Supreme Court decision came down, there have been protests around the country, but we have not seen a huge galvanized uh, display that matched uh, the display that uh, showed up when Trump was elected. Um, Democrats always need an enemy. You know, I mean, I guess maybe it's an it's an axiom in politics that um, messaging for an election when you have something really evil uh, on the other side always makes your job easier. And because Democrats don't know how to message anyway and can't figure out how to create a concise, emotionally resonant, uh, cohesive message that brings Democrats together, because we have such a wide tent, Democrats. Uh, might hope that this savage and damaging opinion um, from Alito, the ultra-radical right wing of the court, um, of, with, with newly anointed lying justices who lied their way to their positions to the United States Senate, both in public and in private, you'd think that that might just be the kind of bell that Democrats could ring and maybe, but doubtful. Um, Americans support the right of a woman to control her own body. They generally, I think, are probably more uh, liberal or more progressive as a whole on various social issues than republicans and conservatives would hope but ultimately elections don't really don't re, aren't really decided on social issues they're decided on pocketbook issues and a feeling of whether things are going right or going wrong now if this contributes to a feeling that republicans And the conservatives have so overstepped the bounds of reason that we just can't live with them anymore. And we're gonna elect a raft of Democrats to make sure we can put in federal protections for the right of a woman to have control of her own body instead of the handmaiden's tale that Justice Alito and the rest of the Republicans would like to see for the United States. Maybe that would work, but I doubt it. I don't think it's gonna have as much impact And for Maggie Hassan, um, who's taken some lumps recently with weird, with weird stuff. I mean, going to the wall and talking about anti-immigration and other issues. um, It probably is not a bad play in New Hampshire, where a true eccentric independent spirit uh, wants to protect a woman's right to choose. Even Alicia feels that way.
0: Alicia, um, uh, just from your bob curious about your perspective on on this, uh, you know, your own personal perspective as well. But analytically, I'm really wondering what you make of this. And and there's a real, this is one of those issues where it's a real Rorschach test for people who want to squint and look at polling and say, oh, this clearly justifies a win for my side. You can, on the one hand, say, well, two-thirds of Americans say that they want to keep Roe versus Wade intact. On the other hand, 30% of Democrats identify themselves as pro-life and less than 30% of Americans say that they support abortion in the second trimester. It's a, it's a complicated issue where people's views are, are sort of hard to peg down. What do you make of the way Senator Hassan is playing this and how it's going to play out in all of these campaigns down the stretch?
2: Well, let me just first note, correct the record. uh, No, I am actually pro-life, Paul. That being said, uh, look, the reality is, and it goes to agreeing with Paul a bit into what you just said, if you vote based on the issue of abortion, you are already going to vote for a Republican or a Democrat, depending on how you stand on abortion. It's just that simple. If that is what you vote based on. Most people do not vote based on any one issue. And again, if they do, they are already going to vote for the Democrat or the Republican, depending on what that issue is. Most people are somewhere in the middle who vote on a variety of issues. To Paul's point, the pocketbook ones are going to be the deciding factors this fall. I think it's a mistake, but go for it for Democrats to take this and run with it and say, yeah, we're going to win based on the abortion issue. It's just not true. You don't move numbers on the abortion issue. It's been an issue for decades. It's been talked about. It's been discussed on the campaign trail. It does not Move the needle. Now, that being said, Republicans got to get their message right. Uh, You know, Democrats are at least on message saying the sky is falling, the sky is falling. The fact is, if this decision actually is the final decision, all it says is it goes back to the states, and that's what elections are for. Vote for people who stand on whichever side of the issue you want them to. Um, But it's really not a sky is falling. But the Democrats are staying on message to fearmonger and do that. At least they're on the same page. Republicans have to know don't litigate abortion in the public too, it, it's just a losing argument. All you have to say is, you know, how do I feel about the Supreme Court decision? I feel like it's the Supreme Court's decision. All it does is put the responsibility back on the states. Discussing the issue of should abortion be legal or not is not a winning argument for whomever is making that argument. It's an unnecessary political message to be having. State your position on it, whichever it is, pro-choice, pro-life and move on, because what will change votes is anger toward each other, but not the issue of abortion unto itself. It's just it's not where the deciding votes are going to come from.
0: I do agree that there's a long track record of this not being an issue that moves the needle, as you say. Now, there's been some analysis and some thinking that This is different because of the psychological factor of loss aversion. People care about losing something that they have. The thing that weighs against that is that a very, very small percentage of Americans who live in states that have already voted to severely restrict access to abortion or have one of these trigger laws that if Roe v. Wade is overturned, then access to abortion will be severely curtailed or outright banned in those states. Very, very few Americans are actually aware of that. And there are a lot of states, about half of U.S. states fall into that category. So the fact that we have gone through decades, decades of litigating this issue, literally, and in our politics, and people have so little understanding of it and so little so little knowledge of what the reality is and how it will affect them. And I hate to say it, but the reality is that increasingly it's become an issue of access on the margins that affects Black women, low-income women. Those are the people who are most likely losing access to abortion in recent years which means that that whole loss aversion issue that Democrats are sort of hoping is is kind of the word for it, is going to kick in here and galvanize their voters is, is likely falling on a smaller subset of Americans. Those are the people who are most affected. It's very sad and it's very tragic. And I disagree with you, Alicia, that this is not a sky is falling. There are unquestionably going to be deaths that occur because of this ruling. Now, if you're pro-life, you're saying, well, there are deaths occurring the other way. That is the crux of the issue. That's that's the matter of debate. There are women who are alive today who are going to die as a result of this ruling. To me, that is extremely dire and extremely serious. But purely as a political matter, I completely agree with you and with you, Paul, that just the track record here suggests that It's, it's, it's an issue that Americans don't love to engage on. They, they, the activists on each side love to get angry about it. And with good reason, in in many cases, because these are, these are passionately held views, but it's just not a clear advantage for Democrats. Even with the fact that this is fundamentally different from all the other abortion related uh, litigation and uh, events that have occurred in the last 30 years since the Casey decision, I just don't see it changing a whole heck of a lot. With that said, I, I guess I, you know, Paul, do you what did you make? We did a show last week in the Beyond Politics podcast with a legal scholar, Kimberly Whaley, who is prominently featured on, on cable. Um, her commentaries are written up all over the place. She gave, I, I thought, a very incisive legal analysis suggesting that this opinion is a mess. It's, it's a real reach. It's the kind of thing that from, a, from an attorney's standpoint, from a, from a legal standpoint is, I've got a conclusion I want to reach. And I'm going to find a way to get there. Doesn't matter kind of where I step along the way. You were actually a prosecutor. You worked for future Supreme Court Justice David Souter. From a a purely legal standpoint, what did you make of the draft opinion? And what do you make of the argument that it puts in jeopardy other rights that we've come to enjoy as Americans that rely on an understanding of privacy, that there are certain areas that the government just does not reach into.
1: Um, I think the opinion is a mess. I think there's a core fallacy in the opinion um, in which the uh, majority, Alito, says basically this case is about the right to abortion. Um and and the Constitution doesn't say there's a right to abortion. Therefore, there's no right to abortion. Uh, I think that's um, uh, incorrect um, legal reasoning. The, actually, the rights at issue are much deeper uh, fundamental rights. So fundamental, in fact, that given the history of individual rights and the rights of an individual, to be free from unwarranted government intrusion into their mental and physical uh, bodily intimate affairs. Those rights were so fundamental, they didn't need to be in the constitution. And if you are any kind of legal scholar, and Alito has, at his disposal, really smart people. And uh, he's no dummy. And if you go back and you, you'll you find all kinds of support for the fact that these rights were so fundamental that they didn't need to be put in the Constitution. And that's the right of privacy. That's the name that, these, that this was given um, in Roe and Casey. Uh, it's called the, the right of privacy. And it's an innate fundamental right that um, was recognized in those decisions. So, those decisions were important, not necessarily for the only for recognizing those fundamental rights and affecting what happened to the right of a woman to control her own body, as opposed to having Judge Alito reach into her uterus, um, but because it recognized that those kinds of fundamental rights to privacy extend not just to a woman in her choice about what happens with her body, but it also extends to protect the equality of all individuals, regardless of gender, uh, persuasion, identification uh, to the rights under the Constitution, which is why the Roe and Casey courts were decided under the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. So there's an essential fallacy in Alito's legal reasoning, which he had to employ in order to get around the logic of Roe and Casey. And it also smacked of this fundamentalist approach. If it's not the words are it in the Constitution, well, they don't exist. So that's at the core. Of, of why this is such a bad
2: opinion. I I think one thing it's, and and I'm not a legal scholar, and I'm not going to weigh in from a legal or constitutional standpoint, because that's well above my education level, but I think it's important for us to remember, this is a draft document that was written in February to, I have read, someone correct me if I'm wrong, these things go through multiple, multiple drafts before they're released. It's scheduled, I guess, to be released in June. And so when they say it's messy or all over the place or doesn't get to the point it's supposed to get to in the proper way, it's a first draft. I mean, I've learned more about how the Supreme Court works in the last week than I think I ever knew about this kind of process. I had no idea. Um, So I think we need to keep that in mind and also see what the final product looks like, presuming it ultimately says at least the same outcome as this. um, You know, we can go back to all the other issues, but I think there's secondary issues that need to be discussed in all this and that uh, while the decision, because it is such a big deal, is certainly the primary piece of this story, it should not be lost that this was leaked and done so in a manner that needs to be investigated, regardless of what this decision is, regardless of why the person did it. It is really serious that the sanctity of the Supreme Court was put in jeopardy. The rules were broken and that needs to be fully investigated. And everybody should be mad about that, whether you like this decision or not. And I
1: appreciate I appreciate that. That's all that Republicans have said. And That's all Republicans want to talk about. Oh, not all i Yeah. Well, that's all the people that your party have been talking about because it's such a nice diversion from the savage cruelty of the decision.
2: Well, I don't think the decision, if it is the ultimate decision, is savage or cruel at all. And I'm happy to talk about it. I have. I've I've given my opinion on the matter. I don't think it's a big deal. It sends the issue back to the States. Woo. That's where most issues belong in the first place. But I think, to say, because the decision is the big deal, therefore, this other thing doesn't matter at all is nonsense. Of course, it matters. Of course, the integrity of the system and the process of the Supreme Court of the United States of America matters. And the ironic thing is you are guys are doing what you say Republicans are. You're ignoring something because you're afraid it might have been one of your guys. Well,
1: I'm not. In fact, wait a second. There was another leak today. There was a leak today about what Justice Roberts wanted to do, um, but uh, he was overruled. Apparently, what Justice Roberts wanted to do was to create a much narrower opinion which dealt with the case that was actually in front of them instead of doing what Alito, the activist Republican judge, did by going way out of bounds and overruling Roe v. Wade entirely. So I'm aware of the integrity of the Supreme Court. Um, look, I ran into Justice Souter years ago in the yogurt aisle at Damoulas in Concord, and he could he he had just suffered through the 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 Gore, the Gore opinion in 2000. He had seen what uh, voters had done in, in reelecting Bush. He couldn't have met. And we have this conversation about both how, how political the court had become, uh, how distressing it was, and also why people voted against their better interest. But he was distressed back then about how political the court was at the time of uh, the Gore decision. Fast forward, you've got Supreme Court justices on the court who were put there by Trump who lied, okay, lied under oath to the Senate in, in hearings and lied uh, in, apparently in private meetings with senators. They lied their way onto the court in order to overturn Roe v. Wade. You bet it's become political and there's not much that's going to be done to restore the integrity of the court leak or no leaks. And, yeah, the opinions shouldn't be leaked.
0: All right. Hold on. Hold on. I'm going to have to call a time out here because we have to take a very quick break here on WKXL. But you know what? I'm not gonna call time out on this debate. What I'm gonna do is, while the rest of you are listening to ads, very important ads from the people who sponsor us and keep us on the air, Alicia is gonna sharpen her knives. And when we come back, Alicia Preston is going to plunge those knives deep into the heart of former US Congressman Paul Hodes, and you're all going to get to hear the result. It's tantalizing. And we'll be right back for much more of that in just a minute. I don't know what's about to happen next, Right before the break, conservative commentator, analyst and political strategist Alicia Preston was getting all ready to fustigate former U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes over his contention that really it's Republican appointed justices to the Supreme Court who have lied their way onto the court. And now you get to go after Paul. Folks, release the hounds.
2: Unfortunately, my response isn't very profound because it's humorous and obvious, and that is that, isn't it funny when it's a conservative Supreme Court, liberals say it's a political activist Supreme Court, and when it's a liberal Supreme Court, conservatives say it's a liberal activist Supreme Court, when a conservative court makes a conservative ruling, liberals say they're political, the court's been political, When a liberal court makes a liberal decision, conservatives say they're political. The court's political. Guess what, guys? The court's political. That's why Democrats appoint people that follow their ideology and Republicans appoint people that follow their ideology. This is not profound. It is just humorous that both sides kind of do the same thing.
0: And no one yeah, I, I, it. I don't buy your both sides Not one bit. I mean, there's not a <laughs> th- this isn't a case of like, oh, Democrats try to cloak what they really want to achieve on the court under some like nice sounding words and legal terms. Starry, decisive, settled, blah, blah, blah. And then they get there. and They're like, yeah, we have been waiting for this for decades. And by the way, there's a show that dropped yesterday in the Beyond Politics podcast feed. And I urge people to check it out fascinating history, especially for radio listeners in New Hampshire. You like your Dartmouth professors. Well, I've got one. I've got the expert on the history of the religious and ideological right in this country. And it seems like this has been the culmination in the last week of a five decade long quest to overturn Roe versus Wade, which was sort of the um, mythological birth moment of the religious right in this country. That's a myth that's totally false, totally untrue. The, the, the religious right, was not interested in Roe versus Wade for like the first six or seven years of its existence. Turns out that their whole agenda was about maintaining segregated Southern universities that were established as diploma mills as part of religious institutions. And that was what they were all about. And then they glommed on to the abortion issue, which Real religious leaders actually didn't care a lot about and and were more or less pro-choice in the late 60s and early 70s. Anyway, it's a fascinating history. I urge people to check it out. But Alicia, I gotta say, I I kind of disagree with your last point. This isn't a both sidesism. I mean, it's very, very obvious that we have a set of Supreme Court justices, by the way, including one who, you know, like Mitch McConnell came up with this thing of like, no, I'm just not gonna, I'm just not gonna appoint Merrick Garland Like, you know, because we can't appoint someone from the other party, you know, heaven forbid we should do that. I
2: mean, okay. here's the other profound reality. I'm going to this is just going to blow your mind. Matt, this is going to blow your mind. Paul, listeners, this is going to blow your mind. Do you know that the Supreme Court takes up issues other than abortion? And why I say that is because I said when liberal decisions are made conservatives rail when conservative decisions are made liberals rail that's not all about abortion they do more than abortion and everyone seems to think you think supreme court i think the issue of abortion i think roe v. wade no this is not just about abortion this is a reality that the court is political that the court has always been political because politicians appoint and approve people to the court but the problem
0: is that it's not political in a legitimate way Republicans have not had a Democratic majority, meaning the majority of voters voted for Republicans since 1996, people, 1996. Because of the way our system is set up that gives Republicans a head start in the Electoral College and in the US Senate, they have been able to maintain majorities or filibuster proof uh, 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 minorities in the US Senate during that whole time And with a brief, brief period, I'm not going to get into the whole ACA history, and have been able to, without a majority, have a U.S. president in place. And then, as if that wasn't enough thumb on the scale, they got Mitch McConnell with his whole Merrick Garland stolen U.S. Supreme Court seat maneuver. And so, Alicia, when you say, well, it's politics, it's all political, both sides do it, don't misread that as this is an outcome of the democratic process. This is an outcome of a process that's totally skewed so that a minority opinion is holding sway. And that's what I think is really sticking in people's craw. And that's why I I think it's a lot of crocodile tears when you say like, well, you know, both sides rail against the idea that it's an activist court. There has not been an activist, I'm air quoting here, an activist, democratic leaning opinion in Years and years because Democratic appointed members of the Supreme Court haven't had a majority in years and years. All of the decisions that conservatives don't like have come with justices that are a mix of appointed by Republicans and Democrats.
1: You know, folks, I I'm going to weigh in a little bit here. Um, one of the great recent liberal justices on the court was a guy named David Souter, and David Souter was from New Hampshire, and. David Souter was a Republican. David Souter was a conservative Republican. I'm speaking of him in the past tense, although he's in the present tense. He's he's alive and well. And David was appointed by a Republican president. And the one of the reasons I took the job that I took when I came to New Hampshire was because I was so impressed with David Souter as a person and as a legal mind. Um, and he became a jurist who... Um, from his experience as attorney general of New Hampshire, uh, his brief experience in private practice, his experience as a judge got on the court and was termed a liberal justice, although he was a conservative Republican. And that's because what David Souter had was integrity. He had integrity and he had the respect for precedent um, and history and the institution that the Supreme Court has always relied on. If we fast forward to today, uh, everybody knew Roe v. Wade was at issue. Yeah. And the uh, nominating and confirmation process has really become awful. I'll grant you that. It's become partisan. It's a you-know-what kind of show. And it it hasn't got any better with Kavanaugh, with Amy Comey Barrett. It's, it's, that's That's been bad. But one of the things that was clearly at issue here was going to be a respect for precedent around Roe v. Wade. And we have never had, in the confirmation process, such clear mendacity, such clear lack of integrity from a group of nominees as we have seen from the Gorsuch-Kavanaugh-Amy Comey-Barrett trio. Uh, they basically lied their way onto the court. So don't give me this, both sides isms. Don't give me this, oh, each side complains about the activism of the other. This is a tragedy for the court and for America and now for American women. And this opinion puts at risk, I don't care what Alito says in his draft, puts at risk many other rights which Americans have come to enjoy now as fundamental to try to keep activist government out of our pants. And that includes LGBTQ rights. Um, it includes uh, the rights of uh, same sex marriage, uh, you name it. So we've got an activist Republican court that is going after fundamental American rights, and they lied their way onto it to get it. So so I'm, I'm tired of wishy-washy self, you know, both sides about what Democrats do and then Republicans do and trying to claim that anything about the political nature of the Supreme Court in the past rises to the level of mendacity and lack of integrity and lack of care for the institution that we're seeing from Alito in this opinion and with this court.
2: It's only activists when you disagree with a ruling. Let's put this in perspective. We're forgetting what this whole ruling is about. This decision ruling, whatever it is, this this when it comes down, when it's in its final form, when we get to see it, is in response to a Mississippi law with a 15-week abortion ban in the Supreme Court being asked whether or not Mississippi is allowed to put in restrictions such as 15 weeks. That's what this is about. It sounds like the court's going to come down if this decision stands and say, yes, Mississippi can put in a 15 week abortion ban. And then there'll be other issues that in it that we have to weed out and see how it affects other states. Presumably that automatically means other states can also put in a 15 week abortion ban. Doesn't mean they can put in an all out ban on abortion. We don't know. I don't know. I kind of presume not. But this whole thing is in response to a Mississippi law that puts an abortion ban at 15 weeks. Now, look, New Hampshire has a law that's 24 weeks. I think it is disgraceful that Democrats are going around saying, which is technically true because we've never had a law about it before, the most restrictive abortion law in the history of New Hampshire. Well, that's because we never had any restrictions. It is a 24-week ban because 80 plus percent of New Hampshire and the country are opposed to third trimester abortions. The law in New Hampshire that Maggie Hassan and everyone is railing about against pro-choice governor, mind you, is a law that is almost identically in effect in 43 states in the United States of America, 43, including states like liberal Massachusetts. They are taking this issue and they're making hay where it doesn't exist. No one in New Hampshire. No one in New Hampshire has submitted a bill that will say outright ban abortion. It's not going to happen in the state anytime soon, if ever, probably not. But back to the matter at hand, all this ruling is, is whether or not the Mississippi law can stand at 15 weeks.
1: There has never been a case, a a law in New Hampshire, which forced women to have ultrasounds, which criminalized abortions, uh, never ever before this because is we've madi- never had a is, law this is radical right Wing politics, and you can't tell me that just because some other state does it, New Hampshire should follow. Whatever forty-three. We have forty-three al- states. We have always prided ourselves in New Hampshire on being independent and doing it our own way, and we did it our own way until the radical right-wing cabal of which I'm hoping you're not a part uh, decided to put in this absolutely awful abortion ban, making it a part of the criminal uh agenda of mitch mcconnell and the other republicans
2: which over 80 percent of the country supports i think elected officials are supposed to do what the majority you want to get of into the want. particular
1: you want to get into the particulars hey, of the hold exceptions. Hold on. if we're going to go
0: with the legal standard is well in polls 80 percent of the country supports it wouldn't that just land us right back in 80 percent of the country wants to keep roe
2: versus wade I don't know if eighty percent. I haven't seen that. Well, that's what the polls say. Right? That's it's what the 80%. polls say. I literally say. just haven't seen them. But here's the difference. Polls say. No, oh, here's the difference. No, here's Here. the big difference. Well, There's Ro- a big
1: difference. Roe v Wade. v Wade oh, dealt with this, and frankly, third trimester abortions are very rare. And the New Hampshire law provided absolutely no exceptions for rape or incest. You want to tell me a senator on the floor the other night? Tell me that that's fair to a woman she's raped and she's forced to carry the baby. You're in handmaidens'
2: tail. You, you want to tell me that cuckoo, in six you're months, in, you're in, cuckoo in land. six months, a woman who has been the victim of rape or incest, which, by the way, I think are one and the same. You're telling me that woman doesn't make that decision in the first six months. Give me a break. This is political theater and nothing else. As for the difference between whether the Supreme Court should do what polls say. No, because to Paul's point, the Supreme Court's supposed to be an independent body with no political persuasion at all, and therefore they shouldn't take into account what the public wants. An elected official in New Hampshire, however, should.
0: Right. But uh, you were just arguing, Alicia, a moment ago that the Supreme Court is inherently political, right? And so- Yeah,
2: but they're not elected we, to do what the people want. They're elected. No, they're, right. they're, they're, they're very much not elected.
0: That's the point. Right. And look, their That's function their function is to say, their function is to say something is, is either protected in the constitution or not. And so what this ruling would do, it's not just the narrow thing on the Mississippi lot. That's That's what Justice Roberts wanted. He wanted a narrow ruling about that one law. What Justice Alito did was he said, no, 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 no. I'm gonna go way beyond that. I'm going to say that what is a fundamental right, I'm taking that out. The entire legal reasoning is wrong. The last 50 years is wrong. The 24 Supreme Court justices that have all upheld it, they were in that time since the original ruling, they're all wrong too. They're all wrong. I'm right. And regardless of how public opinion has shifted on this, and it's, it's, it's generally shifted in favor of choice, regardless of the, 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 the legal principles involved, I am going to get rid of it. And so it's, it's not merely about that. The, the effect is that if this ruling, if his reasoning goes into effect, then there are going to be severe new restrictions that do not exist today and that go well beyond 15 weeks in much of the rest of the country forget the new hampshire law forget the mississippi law this is going to be a, this is going to be a whole new ball game in the majority of the country and so it's a it's a pretty profound change and yes to me that does seem like a, a piece of judicial activism but I I think we have to leave it here because we've now basically played out the argument that I think has been playing out for 50 years in America. We're not going to solve in the remaining 10 minutes that we have on this show. I want to turn to an even crazier topic. Could we do that? Could we could we talk about something crazier? We have to do a few minutes of this week in Trump. Alicia, I'm going to give you a buffet of crazy to choose from. So you could start with the Republican who won a congressional primary in Ohio, who's a QAnon supporter who literally burned into his lawn, the the symbol Q in his Trump 2020 lawns. I, he burned it into his lawn. I don't understand how that works. And who was part of the attack on the Capitol. That's, you could choose, you could choose from that buffet item, looks delicious. You could choose the fact that J.D. Vance won in Ohio. We talked about this on the show last week and uh, what that would mean for for. Trump and his legacy. You're talking about the massive influx of cash that Donald Trump just raised in his Kentucky Derby fundraiser and how it shows that he still absolutely dominates the money field in the Republican Party and the revelation that Donald Trump wanted to fire missiles into Mexico. Alicia, what would you like to pick?
2: <laughs> well, first, let me clear up the queue on the lawn. It was a giant, like enormous Trump 2020, and the zeros were replaced with Qs that's how the q got into the lawn that was the q and on i got nothing on somehow that somehow
0: that makes it less crazy to me i you you actually made me feel better
2: oh then i'm afraid of you or for you or something i'm not sure it's crazy um like let's remember QAnon believes like a pizza shop is running a pedophile ring in washington dc or something i i they're really strange conspiracy theories uh let's let's i had go
1: pizza to- there when i was a congressman
2: we
0: actually had a, we had a party for your staff party there that's right i remember we should say well. this on the air because seriously like a third of republican voters still believe in the QAnon thing and yeah, they're right. probably going to go after you well,
2: they're they, going to start they, tweeting
1: they, that they, they already part went of they, yeah they already went it's a pedophile
0: me. ring yeah. you like how i said how the, they're gonna go after you paul not me you <laughs>
1: yeah i know I was
2: know. the pizza good bring I it can, on i always search the for pizza, pizza w- the pizza was you okay know. it was it's okay pizza. it was it's okay pizza. but you know I mess
1: mean, up pizza given what was going on in not the basement true. what what do you expect
2: from the pizza That's i grew up in new york city oh. right all pizza
0: is crap compared to what i'm used to
2: i agree with you on that but anyway uh you know i think the mark esper interview was really interesting. I think the most interesting outcome of it was when the network contacted Donald Trump's team. The response to it was, and I quote, no comment. And we don't get no comments out of Donald Trump. I think we all know. He later then subsequently said he was weak or whatever. But, um, you know, kudos to Mark Esper for coming out. I'm not a fan ever of tell all books when you've been working for an administration. I just think there's this like There used to be a line where you didn't do that, but that line's been like pushed way away. Everyone writes tell all books now and it happens. And let's be honest, it's fascinating to read. And in some cases, the books written about this time period are like looking at a traffic accident and rubbernecking around it. I mean, it's there's a lot of crazy. And um, according to Mark Esper and according to a witness quoted in his book, this did happen that Donald Trump wanted to. Bomb or send missiles at drug cartels in Mexico? You know, on the face of it, I really don't care if drug cartels are bombed to oblivion, but as a nation, you can't do that. (laughs) Like that creates war with with another country. You just can't do that. You know, my my personal, I don't care if a drug cartel. You you
1: you can't. (laughs) We can't send bombs to Mexico or get the drug cartel.
2: Like it's 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 just not rational. And um, the interview was really interesting to watch. You can read it line by line online as well, without just not just the news coverage of it. And it's telling, and it's a little concerning, but it makes me happy. We had people like Mark Esper to stop it. Um, You know, One of his parting comments was, and I think this was said to the chief of staff, look, it's his prerogative to fire me, but my oath is to the constitution, not to him. That is so important for us all to remember. And I think too few in that administration Remembered that the oaths they took, whether they're as congressmen or U.S. senators or staff or cabinet members, the oath is not to Donald Trump or to Joe Biden or Barack Obama or Bill Clinton or anybody else. The oath is to the United States of America, regardless of who is in that Oval Office.
0: Well, just to pick up on that myself for a second, and I think we talked about this a little bit when uh, Paul was not with us, uh, which which rarely happens. But your last point there Alicia is something that I profoundly agree with and it just takes me back to the conversation we were having about Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell and a lack of integrity and we we're talking about what you just said which is when you become a member of Congress you swear an oath to uphold and defend and protect the constitution not your political party and that's why you know the biggest piece of this week in Trump that bothers me. And it just, I just remembered it where I would have put it on the buffet for you is the revelation about Kevin McCarthy talking about that at senior levels of the Republican party in Congress, they had talked about invoking the 25th amendment after January 6th and trying to get Trump out. And he said, the reason he didn't do it was just that it would take too long. So what do we know because of that? We know that he got that. This was the kind of thing that Donald Trump was deranged and and he couldn't be in office a moment longer. He understood that. So his turnaround since that time and his fealty to Donald Trump shows that he has broken his oath. He knows that this is someone who is completely unfit for office and has has not upheld his own oath to the Constitution. And McCarthy has decided that his pursuit of power and protecting his political party is more important. Than his oath to the constitution. And that, that is what I think I continue to find a hard, I find it hard to wrap my brain around this because, you know, look, I'm guessing Alicia, that you were not the biggest fan of say Barack Obama. You may not have even been the biggest fan of George W. Bush. Maybe you were, maybe you weren't. I like Georgie. I, I, you know what? I was not a fan, but I will say this. You did not see every Single senior member of the cabinet spokesperson, communications director, and senior staffer and former chief of staff come out of any of those White Houses and do a tell all book that explained just they were trying to sell it on the strength of you got to realize that the president of the United States was insane and dangerous. And we've had book after book after book. And yet the American people do not seem to care. All right. Ran over, but you fair know.
2: assessment. Fair assessment.
1: Well, Donald Trump is doing pretty well. His candidate, he endorses candidates; they win. He raises boatloads of money uh, at the Kentucky Derby. Uh, hasn't been indicted yet um, so far. It's a good week for Donald Trump, and he's looking like Teflon as usual.
0: Uh, it's again. I'm I'm taken back to, the, and this is going to really date me for our younger listeners, but. Saturday Night Live, which is a show that's on television. It's not a YouTube thing <laughs> for our young people. It's Saturday night Live whats TV? in 1988 I know right I actually what? said I coached my daughter's what's soccer television team, and I told I told them they were being too slow to react to the ball and I said, oh, you're acting like you can eat an apple see what's on the DVR you know what all these 11 year olds said to me what's a DVR? Oh my gosh I said it's like watching YouTube they're like, why did you just say that Anyway, in 1988 one of the most famous skits that SNL ever did, pictured uh, Michael Dukakis debating George H.W. Bush. And the sum up of it was, George H.W. says something completely incoherent. And the Dukakis character says, I can't believe I'm losing to this guy. And that's, that's sort of how I think Democrats and the Biden White House must be feeling these days. Because look, They just got another jobs report, like almost half a million jobs created, and we're at rock bottom, like historically low unemployment. I get it. I get inflation. Inflation is bad. We all agree. But there are some things that are going really, really well. And in the face of the contrast of all of this unending stream of crazy coming out of all of these tell alls, the contrast between Biden and Trump. And yet, if you look at polls now, They'd be neck and neck if they were, if, if 2024 were today, they would be neck and neck. I just find that utterly depressing. I, I, I can't believe that that's somehow where we've gotten to. I can't believe we might be losing to that guy again. Anyone have 10 seconds of, of sum up? Cause we gotta, we gotta go. Just real
2: quick. Yeah. I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, ahead, I'm, sorry. I'm sorry you feel bad, but get ready.
2: I just want to note that it's not because 50% of the voting country supports Donald Trump. It's because 50% of the voting country either supports Donald Trump or is struggling so difficultly right now with inflation. They just want to change what's there.
0: Yeah, we're going to have to pick up that inflation story next time. And that's when we will talk to you again on Balance of Power. For Paul and Alicia, I'm Matt. We'll see you next time.